This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. What's up, everybody? This is the first live recording of Aider and a Better in front of an audience. We learned about a middle school class, actually two classes, at a school called Jordan Middle School in Palo Alto. They are looking at the issues of when uh, minors are prosecuted as adults. So we got to go out and uh, meet with these 13 and 14 year olds and talk about juvenile justice and the criminal justice system more generally. So here's what we're gonna do. In the first segment, I talk about my representation of a person named Edgar who was prosecuted for a homicide that he committed when he was 17 years old and he received a life without parole sentence. And I talk about the work that we did on his behalf. In the second segment, Sajid delivers a modified closing argument. In California, after the passage of a voter initiative, before the prosecutors can prosecute a minor as an adult, they have to get judicial approval through a thing called a transfer hearing. So Sajid it, uh, kind of communicates some of his thoughts about that process and uh, makes a case. Uh, in the last segment, we did a Q&A with the class. So uh, that's what the episode is. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. One final thing before we get started, I just wanted to shout out everybody in the Ader Nation. The state of the Ader Nation is strong. Uh, we are really uh, grateful uh, to everybody for the support of this project. We thank you so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Ader and a Better. Well, hi, everybody. So nice to be here. Again, I'm Avi Singh. This is Sajid Khan. Good morning. We're so glad to be here with you all. Uh, we think it's really cool what you all have been reading about and thinking about in terms of juvenile justice. Our hope for today was to share some stories of cases that we've worked on, uh, some of our thoughts about the area of prosecuting uh, young people as adults, punishing young people uh, in the criminal justice system, and then to take questions. So our hope is that we can take a lot of questions, have a lot of exchange, but we're aware of what you all have been reading about and studying, and we want to just share our perspectives uh, as people who represent minors who are being prosecuted in the uh, adult system. Avi is going to share a story of a client that he represented in the past couple years. I'm also going to share uh, a closing argument that I just made on Friday on behalf of a young person, a 16-year-old young boy who was charged with a gang-related murder here in San Jose. And so I'm going to share the argument that I just made in court on Friday uh, with you all because it covers a lot of the themes and issues that I think you all are studying in terms of juvenile justice. And then we do really want to hear from you, uh, your questions and your thoughts. We're really proud of your teacher and the school for introducing these themes and these concepts to you at this young age, getting you to think about juvenile justice and our system responses. And so we're excited to have this conversation with you guys. In terms of questions, anything you want to talk about, uh, we're happy to talk about. It doesn't have to be juvenile justice related. It could be about criminal defense or trials or whatever, or movies, anything you want. So I, I thought I'd just talk to you a little bit about a shift that's happened recently in your lifetimes, the way minors are treated in the criminal justice system has changed in a way that, I mean, the whole approach has shifted. There have been Supreme Court cases that have changed how we think about kids from the standpoint of what's cruel and unusual, what kind of punishments are cruel and unusual. In 2015, I learned about a person named Edgar who was incarcerated at Ironwood State Prison. Edgar was serving a sentence called life without the possibility of parole, which means life in prison never to be released, never to have an opportunity to be released, even if he was carrying his life out as a model person while incarcerated. So in the 90s, Edgar's family moved him from Puerto Rico to California. He was living with his mom and some siblings. He was given a lot of free space to run because his mom was working a lot. Uh, he met a man named, uh, another kid named Joseph and another one named Angel. Joseph, at the time that matters, was 18 years old. He was 18 and about eight months. Angel was 18 and about one month, so he just turned 18 and Edgar had just turned 17. As I think about it, when I was 17, hanging out with an 18-year-old, it felt like a much bigger difference than just 12 months. A person who was older as 18-year-old, 18 and eight months, would seem much older than somebody who was just 18. So Joseph was kind of the person in charge, and he had organized this group as a, they would rob people. They would take people's property, they would take people's money with force. 
so they wouldn't like break into houses but they would use guns they would point them at people and they would take their stuff the day that mattered edgar went to a concert it was like a tower of power concert which is a band that was playing in san jose they listened to music they went out driving and joseph was driving the car and he saw three young men walking one of the men was about to graduate from uc berkeley he was with his friends. He had just come back home to spend time, hang out. And Joseph told Edgar, you're going to go rob those people. Edgar, who was 17 at the time, said, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. And Joseph said, that's okay. And so he said Edgar was kind of at ease. He's not going to have to participate. Joseph pulled his car around so it was kind of in closer proximity to these three young men. And he then said, I've changed my mind. You're going to have to do it. From police investigation, we learned that when Edgar wouldn't participate in robberies, Joseph would berate him, uh, but it was pretty hostile, and Joseph was kind of a scarier person to Edgar. So Edgar and Angel, the other person, were armed, the two younger, and they were sent out uh, by Joseph to uh, commit this robbery. As they were robbing the three men, uh, it appeared that this was a, over a tiny amount of money. Gunfire uh, rang out, and the young man, Joshua Hernandez, was killed in the street. It's really tragic, really awful. Investigation starts. They're trying to find out who did it. The police uh, identify through some tips Edgar, who's still 17. It's 1995. And he goes to Juvenile Hall. He gives a full statement. He's crying. He's explaining his role. He's explaining the sequence of events, roughly, as I've described it to you all. Uh, he gets to meet with his mom who tells him she wants him to cooperate fully with the police he does he goes he shows the officers where the places where the other other people are associated their apartment the officers can't find the right unit because there's a couple units they're not sure which one to go to edgar says i'm going to help you find the room and they say you don't have to do that because it's kind of dangerous to go into a neighborhood and point out this is the apartment that's associated with this this killing and he does it and he gives all the information that the police need in order to make the case, uh, in order to prosecute the case. Edgar was convicted in 1998 after trial. What happened was Angel, the other person who was there, who was an adult, was given a deal where he was allowed to get 15 years to life in prison, meaning he could become eligible for parole after 15 years, and he would testify against everybody. He corroborated, he said the same story that Edgar had provided to the uh, police. Joseph, who armed these young people and sent them out in the street, received a sentence of 40 years to life after trial. There were other charges involved. And Edgar, the person who had the gun in his hand, but who was the youngest, who was subjected to this berating, who was remorseful, who the judges actually found were truly remorseful uh, in his actions, who provided the information that allowed them to make the case, received a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. He had been convicted of a thing called felony murder. Felony murder is where you do something so dangerous that it's likely that a murder could result, or you know, you should know that a murder could result a killing, that we call it a murder. When you do something really dangerous and someone dies. And robbery with a gun is something really dangerous where, you know, it's foreseeable that somebody could die as a result. So he was convicted of that and he was convicted of a special circumstance which is called a killing in the course of a robbery. So it was a murder because it was a robbery, and it was a special type of murder because it was a robbery. And he received life without parole. You know, he was sent, he was sent off to prison with no prospects. The promise was that he would never get out. Edgar went to, and the judge had no say. The judge couldn't consider anything. The fact that Edgar had cooperated, the fact that he was truly remorseful for his actions, the fact that he was the youngest in the group, the fact that Joseph Hayes had exerted a lot of control over him, none of it mattered uh, because our law required that sentence. So fast forward over 15 years, Edgar is at Ironwood State Prison and he, once he gets to the prison, once he gets to a reception facility, he drops out of the gang immediately. He goes to a thing called a special needs yard, so he's no longer involved with the gang. He starts working. He starts sewing. He starts helping correctional officers in the functioning of the prison. He starts mentoring other people who are incarcerated, some of them who have an opportunity to one day get out. He becomes a facilitator for the Alternatives to Violence program. He becomes a facilitator and interpreter for gang intervention programming. He had lived this life, it had directed him into this path, but it wasn't going to define him, and he became a fully formed person uh, over uh, almost, almost 20 full years. So the 
at the time of his sentencing, the law just was what it was. But after that, a number of cases went up to the United States Supreme Court. One of the cases said that you can't give a person, a minor, life without the possibility of parole for a non-homicide offense, right? So if you had done a carjacking with a gun in some states, you could go for go to prison without any chance of parole. And the Supreme Court said no, because uh, kids are different. That wouldn't really help Edgar, though, because he, his case involved a killing, a homicide. So another case came out called Miller, where the Supreme Court said it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment to give a child, a minor, life without the possibility of parole as a mandatory thing, to be unable to consider the things about them that are about them being a young person. How we know that kids sometimes, we just know that their brains operate differently and they kind of form and they grow into who they're going to be, that there's this process that happens uh, with adolescence. And so the Supreme Court said, if you are not considering any of that and you're just sending somebody away for life without parole, that's unconstitutional. It's a violation of uh, the Eighth Amendment. It's cruel and it's unusual. So uh, we got a second chance and we got to go into court with Edgar and file a thing called a, a writ of habeas corpus where we said his sentence was illegal. I got to know him over two years as we worked together on the case. I got to learn all about his prison performance. I got to learn all about what he was like before this killing, how it affected him and what changes he made in his life. And we got to present that all to a judge. The person I worked with was older than me, right? I was trying to understand him as a kid, but he was older than me. I really respected all the work that he had put in in prison. It was unusual because he, when he was sent, and actually the judge said this at the sentencing hearing, when he was sent to prison, there was no chance for him. There was no light at the end of his tunnel in terms of his, his life in prison, right? It was a, there was no reason to improve himself, to help other people from the standpoint of getting out because that wasn't going to happen. She found it noteworthy that when he went to prison, he dropped out of this gang. And when he went to prison, he started working and he started rehabilitating. He started working on narcotics uh, addiction issues. She found that his sentence was unconstitutional. She found that he was not irreparably corrupt based on his changes that he'd shown. And she gave him a parole eligible sentence. But I'll just tell you, the hearing at the time when, I mean, this is charged because there are people who are victims who were there, you know, having to relive a lot of the moments of the trial. They were having to think about were there factors surrounding the robbery that made his involvement less significant than the person who had armed him and put him out in the streets? So this is a really hard process for everybody involved. And at the day of the decision, I just remember the judge spoke for about, it could have been 20 minutes about how much harm Edgar had caused and how he had been kind of minimizing his own role in this. And, and I was listening and just thinking about how this was his shot and he was going to have to stay back in life without parole again, despite all of this incredible work that he had done. Letters from correctional officers, letters from other inmates who he had mentored, you know, all these folks. And then she said that his work in prison after, after the killing was what made him worthy of release. And so he, she, he's still in prison now, but he has some opportunity someday to get out, which factors in that he committed this offense when he was not fully formed. So that's something I wanted to share with you all. Good morning again. Earlier this year, I uh, got a call on a Saturday morning. It was from one of the supervisors of the juvenile unit in our public defender's office saying, hey, I know you live in San Jose. Uh, we just got a new juvenile client who's been charged with a gang-related murder. He just got arrested, and we need an attorney to go see him today. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was having lunch with my family, and I finished lunch, and I went over to our juvenile hall, which is in downtown San Jose. I was wearing jeans and a sweater and I met with this young man. I'm going to call him Francisco. It's not his actual name, but I'm just going to use that name for, for this morning. And I got to meet this 17-year-old boy 
who was charged with the gang-related murder. And it was a murder that took place in April of 2016 in the city of San Jose when he was 16, when my client Francisco was 16 years old. He was arrested several months later and was in juvenile hall that morning. So I got to start to meet him and talk to him. And the difference with him compared to Avi's client, Edgar, was that my client was charged with this murder in the era of Prop 57. Prop 57 passed last year, which uh, changed the law and changed the law where before prosecutors or district attorneys could charge a young person like Francisco directly as an adult. There was, they had the ultimate authority to do that. It didn't matter what a judge or a defense attorney like Avi and I had to say. If the DA decided to prosecute a young person as an adult, that's the way the case went forward. This time around, because of Prop 57 that passed last November in the state of California, now a young person like Francisco, who was charged with this gang-related murder, was now coming to juvenile court instead of adult court and it would be up to a judge to decide whether to transfer his case to adult court or to keep him in juvenile court. So fast forward to this past Friday. Uh, this past Friday, literally a couple days ago, I was in court with my client Francisco and I was standing before a judge and I made the same argument that I'm gonna share with you this morning uh, to the judge, asking that judge to keep Francisco in juvenile court instead of sending him to the adult court. It was an hour-long argument, so I'm not going to make the entire argument. I'm just going to share some of the excerpts of it with you, just so you get a sense of what some of the themes were for my client and some of the things that I was trying to stress to the judge for her to consider as she made this very significant decision. So here you go. Francisco is a product of his surroundings, a manifestation of instability, trauma, and chaos. A child worthy and capable of redemption and not an adult beyond repair to be caged and buried in prison. Your Honor, I'm asking you to keep Francisco here in juvenile court. For so long, prosecutors in this county and across our state would have just been able to direct file this young man in this case in adult court solely based on the conduct alleged. Judges and defense attorneys like myself were left powerless to undo a prosecutor's decision to, to direct file a young person. This system resulted in draconian, disproportionate, lengthy prison sentences for juveniles that failed to account for mitigating circumstances such as their youth, lack of development, history of trauma, and potential to rehabilitate. But Your Honor, the trajectory of juvenile justice is changing. There has been a nationwide and statewide recognition that children and teenagers are different, that childhood matters, trauma matters, environment matters, the nuances and layers of these young people matter. Your Honor, Prop 57 is the latest in the continuum of reforms that make that recognition that children are different. And 65% of the state's electorate decided to pass Prop 57. So it's no longer the prosecutor that makes the decision to direct file a young person into adult court. Now, Prop 57 has made it so that you, Your Honor, would make that decision based on my client's context, not just his conduct. So here we are, Your Honor, in this crucial crossroads moment in our county and state's treatment of our young people. And it is you, this court, that must look at Francisco, this boy, in his totality, see his humanity, understand his background, appreciate his future, make a decision about the best forum for his case to be adjudicated. And we believe that forum is juvenile court. As noted in the recent United States Supreme Court, Miller v. Alabama, the Supreme Court said, children are constitutionally different from adults for sentencing purposes. Because juveniles have diminished culpability and greater prospects for reform, they are less deserving of the most severe punishments. Their lack of maturity and under, underdeveloped sense of responsibility lead to recklessness, impulsivity, and heedless risk-taking. They are more vulnerable to negative influences and outside pressures, including from family and peers. They have limited control over their environment and lack the ability to extricate themselves from horrific, crime-producing settings. Because a child's character is not as well-formed as, as an adult's, his traits are less fixed and his actions are less likely to be evidence of irretrievable, irretrievable depravity. So now this court must analyze whether this young person pursuant to the five criteria in Welfare and in Institutions Code 707A is fit or unfit for juvenile court. And Prop 57 again made it so that this court would only transfer this young person to adult court after carefully uh, evaluating the criteria 
including the maturity and intellectual capacity of my client, the physical, mental, and emotional health of Francisco at the time of the alleged offense, his ability to appreciate the risks and consequences of criminal behavior, the impact of family, older adults, or peer pressure on his actions, the effect of the community environment and childhood on Francisco, the juvenile's capacity to grow and mature, and the adequacy of previous services to the minor. And it also includes an evaluation of the degree and severity of involvement in the current case, my client's mental and emotional development, and the level of harm caused by his crime. So I went on, I'm gonna take a little interlude, I went on to talk about a variety of different things, including adolescent brain development, how young people's brains develop and continue to develop until age 25, that there are parts of your brains, that our brains when we were younger, that aren't fully formed when you're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, uh, that there are other factors that influence my client's life, including undiagnosed <coughs> mental health issues, uh, his consistent use of drugs and alcohol, his being subject to significant peer pressure in his environment uh, because of the neighborhoods that he grew up in. But then more specifically, I talked to the court about the impact of my client's community environment and childhood trauma. And here's what I said about that. I said that Francisco's trauma started before his conception. It started before his birth and in his earliest days. Francisco was born to an uneducated single mother who immigrated from Mexico when she was already six months pregnant with him. He never once knew or met his father, and his father never provided a single cent or moment of emotional or financial or physical support. Francisco grew up in neighborhoods in the city of San Jose, neighborhoods that we read about in police reports and newspaper articles, but that we rarely see, understand, or experience. In his young life, by the age of 16, he moved nearly a dozen times and went to seven different schools. Each of those moves reflected chaos, a lack of stability, a lack of roots, and a lack of connection. In every place that he lived, he never lived in his own room. He always lived in cramped, shared apartments where he, his mother, and his sisters were stuffed into living rooms or garages or single bedrooms. He never had the privacy, the space to sit and do his homework, to listen to music, or just be. You saw, the, the court saw, we showed her pictures of every apartment that he lived in. We trekked to the downtown 10th Street apartment where his single mother brought him as a newborn. We went to the Sardine Can neighborhood where he, his mom, and stepfather lived in a garage. It's the same block where his mom had to take him off the street in the aftermath of a drive-by shooting when he was just seven years old. We went from one East San Jose studio to another, from King to McKee to Jackson to Story to White, tracing the path of my client, his mother, and sisters as they bounce around through his youth. Each of the dwellings that he passed through, a room here, a garage there, a different stop for e nearly each of his birthdays as his immigrant mother, who didn't speak a word of English, sought to survive in the costly Silicon Valley. In total, we visited 11 addresses, and the court saw 11 different homes that were littered through the oft-forgotten, densely populated, gang-ravaged neighborhoods of San Jose, each a piece of the tapestry of my client's being his nomadic, unstable existence. I then told the story of my client, who was the subject of significant physical and emotional abuse at the hands of his stepfather. And I described this, this stepfather, who, according to my client's mother, uh, would, actually, I'm going to just read it. My client's mother reports that Mr. Hernandez continued to his verbal abuse towards Francisco and that she ultimately sought and retrieved a, received a restraining order against Mr. Hernandez when Francisco was just 10 years old. In her application for a restraining order, the mom said, during the length of our relationship, I have endured emotional, verbal, and physical abuse. That her son, after hearing uh, these things, would have would beg beg her to just live by themselves she said that mr hernandez the stepfather would throw things at her slam a door in her face hit her in the face with his hands and that she feared that mr hernandez would physically harm her son francisco that mr hernandez is verbally abusive and that every day francisco would cry and it was upset that he was always tense because every day that Mr. Hernandez would come home, Francisco would be worried that he'd be yelled at and forced to do things that he didn't want to do. That's the house that my client grew up in. I told the court about the neighborhoods that my client grew up in. 
the gang involved and gang entrenched and gang ravaged neighborhoods where my client <clears throat> was subject to a neighborhood neighborhoods of pervasive trauma gang infestation and normalized violence and so I, I told the judge that Fernando's behaviors were manifestations of trauma where hurt people hurt people and of his environment that his conduct wasn't indicative of criminal sophistication uh, nor was it beyond what would be expected of an average age youth raised in these neighborhoods and circumstances. I told the court that Fernando merely mirrored and mimicked the normalized violent actions he witnessed and experienced around him. I'm going to fast forward to the, what I told the judge to close, and then I would love to hear your questions and thoughts. So what I told the judge at the end was I told her that it's going to require courage from her. I looked her in the eye and I said, it's going to require courage from you, Your Honor, to keep this young man here in juvenile court because for so long, you, this court, would never have seen a young person charged with this type of crime. For so long, our communities have decided that these young people are adults and they're going to be prosecuted and convicted and punished as adults. But now we're asking you, Your Honor, to make, to stop that trend, to do something different than that's, that's ever been done before. And I told her, that the trajectory of juvenile justice is changing, as I mentioned earlier, and we asked, I'm asking her to be on the right side of it. As Avi just alluded to, there's no more, uh, no more juveniles, there's no more death penalty for, the ju for juveniles um, that committed even the most serious crimes. There's no mandatory life without the possibility of parole sentences. And again, there's no more unilateral direct filing of young people into adult court. As I mentioned earlier, there's a recognition that all these things matter, that children and teenagers are different, that childhood matters, trauma matters, environment matters. And so I told the judge that she stood before us and that this was a, a significant decision that she had to make in this crucial moment of juvenile justice in this county, state, and country. And I asked her, what message does she want to send to this young man, Francisco? Does she want to send the same message that has been sent to countless other young people that are sitting in our prisons today, like Edgar? The message that their lives can be nothing more than the worst thing that they ever did as a 16-year-old child? Or do we want to tell Francisco and tell other young people that what they did was wrong, what they are accused of is serious and heinous and that they will be held accountable? but they can be and will be so much more and that they will not be defined by the worst thing that they ever did as a teenager. And I, I concluded by telling the judge, when we consider Fernando's context and not just his conduct, we see that his behaviors are the product of abandonment, unhealed trauma, pervasive normalized gang culture and poverty, that he's a product of his surroundings, a manifestation of instability and chaos. Again, a child worthy and capable of redemption and not an adult beyond repair to be caged and buried in prison. And I told the judge, no adult court for this child, no adult prison sentence, no adult prisons or sentences for him, no locking him away and further traumatizing him and damaging him, no defining his life by the worst thing he ever did as a 16 year old. Instead, I asked the judge to heal his trauma, to develop and foster virtuous traits within him, to remove him from the harmful environment that he grew up within to su support and fortify his family and for us as a community to raise him together as a whole and holistic human being. And I, I finished by saying, given Francisco's background and circumstances, his willingness to participate in rehabilitative programs and his demonstrated success at rehabilitation while in juvenile hall, this court should not forfeit the opportunity to rehabilitate him, nor should it define his life, his entire life by his worst moments as a 16 year old. Instead, this court should hold Francisco accountable while honoring his capacity for rehabilitation through a juvenile disposition that provides him care, treatment, and healing to remedy the roots of his delinquency. So that's what I told the judge. I'm sharing it with you all now. And um, I'm really excited to uh, hear your uh, thoughts and questions. And I appreciate you taking these moments to listen to my thoughts. Thank you. If you have a question, please hop up to the microphone. If you could just talk into the microphone, say your name, your first name. Let us have a question. If you, It doesn't have to be a question. If you have a comment or any thoughts that you've formulated while you've been taking in all this material, 
uh, let us know. We'd, we'd be happy to hear it. Or if you disagree with something I just said or Avi said or you think that that uh, we should be treating young people you know, the way we have before, we're open to your thoughts and ideas. Or if you just love the podcast and you <laughs> want more of it, just let us know. All right. Okay, so um, I was wondering what what do you do if you know that your defendant is guilty but you still have to defend them? Okay. I'll just uh, repeat it so everybody hears. The question was, if you're defending a person who you know to be guilty, how do you handle that? What do you do? Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay. The way that I see my practice as a public defender is that people are charged with a criminal offense. I'm appointed to question every assumption that's connected to the prosecution of them, to help them work through what their goals are, to identify a course forward, and to give them some respect as they develop that course and once they decide on a set of actions to execute that course of action. For me, it's not I'm only here to represent innocent people. It's really about what my clients are requesting of me as their attorney. So it's it's for me personally, it's not a struggle that I have because of what my mindset is as I practice. I will tell you that the the thing that actually really affects me is how many people I assist in being convicted, whether it's because they're charged with something really serious and they're facing life in prison and it seems like they could maybe win their trial, maybe, maybe, but they're offered to get out today, you know, if they just say that they're guilty of something. That, when we look at our criminal justice system, over 95% of the cases end in by plea bargains where people just say, okay, I agree, I'm guilty, give me some lesser charge or give me some less time. And that's a real struggle. It's, I, I agree that some parts of the criminal defense practice can be hard. The hard part for me is that, is all the folks who are uh, taking these outcomes where they're being convicted of something so that they can, even though they haven't been convicted yet, they're being held in jail and they can be released if they just say that they're guilty. So that's a hard part for me. There's a, a few layers to our representation. So our clients are accused, let's say, of a petty theft or a DUI all the way to a murder, whatever they're accused of. One of the first things we have to evaluate is not whether they're guilty or not, whether they've told us they're guilty or not, whether we think they're guilty or not. It's whether or not there is credible evidence of their guilt because the prosecution has the burden of proof to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that our clients are guilty of the crime that they've been accused of. So that's the first one of the first things we evaluate. Is there actual proof that holds up in court of their guilt? And so that's where we uh, as Avi said, we we scrutinize um, the evidence to make sure that our clients are not going to be convicted of anything unless there's credible proof of it. The second thing that we're evaluating, too, is whether or not that evidence was collected lawfully. Did the police and law enforcement do their jobs in in accordance with our um, with our Constitution, the our rights to be free from unreasonable or illegal searches and seizures, things like that? So was the evidence collected lawfully or unlawfully? That And that doesn't have anything to do with whether our clients are guilty or not. It's just a matter of how our system and our law enforcement did their jobs. The third thing is even if our clients are guilty, that's not the end of the equation. As you just heard, we have to decide uh, or we have to help uh, judges and DAs decide what's the best penalty or punishment for the crime that they've committed. What's, what's, what's a fair outcome? What's going to be an outcome that... that takes into account the victims of the crime, but also takes into account the, the offender, takes into account public safety, rehabilitation, all these factors. So, and so one of the biggest things that we're helping decide or advocate for is just what's the right outcome. And then the last thing I wanted to say is the biggest part of our job is to ensure that guilty or not, that our clients, that any person who's accused of a crime, whether it be a misdemeanor or a felony, has someone, i.e. us, that's sitting with them and just telling them what's happening, making sure that they know what their rights are, making sure that they know what the process is all about, making sure they know what their options are, making sure that they're heard. So even if my clients, which I've had plenty of, uh, plenty of, are guilty of really serious crimes, the biggest part of my job as a public defender is to sit with them and to advise them, to talk to them, to get to know them, make sure they know that at least one person in the entire world 
is there for them. Um, because especially when you when you talk about serious crimes, I just did a, a murder trial about a month ago. My client was by himself. Like his whole family had essentially kind of turned his their backs on him. He had no community or family support. And I was the person, I am that person still, that's willing to sit with him and just be with him through the process, even though that client, for example, was ultimately found guilty of first-degree murder. So that I just wanted to answer that there are these various layers of the job that we do, even when our clients are guilty of the most serious crimes. We've got another question. My name is Tabor, and I was wondering, how can science help us improve the current justice system? So the question is, how can science help improve the criminal justice system. I think that we've had big changes with people being released from prisons uh, because of scientific progress, because of retesting of evidence that was collected. I think that it would be beneficial if our legal system removed barriers to bringing claims that people are actually innocent. Uh, you know, you have somebody where you find some uh, scientific evidence like a print or DNA, contact DNA, which is just from touching something. It's not like blood or anything, uh, where if you could just retest or new testing techniques that allow you to determine things with lower amounts of material. It's sometimes frustrating when you hear in the news that there's some evidence that could exonerate a person, but there are these legal roadblocks uh, to that testing. One really dangerous thing that could come into a criminal court isn't science, but it's, it's fake science. Saj and I once did a trial together where a witness testified as an expert and uh, the witness literally read some article in front of us and then testified to what she read, just uh, read a sentence and then just testified to it. That's really, really problematic in my view. The gloss, if you're a juror, right, and you're listening to the scientists come in and they're saying things that are conclusions, uh, that can be really scary. So more science, fewer barriers to scientific testimony coming in more informed uh, jury pools and attorneys to attack junk science. It's, it's all to the good. Yeah, I was going to mention the thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is um, is cell phone evidence. Uh, so now, for example, before, if if we wanted to say, you know, Joe Smith was at the scene of the crime and Joe Smith's my client, he's saying, I wasn't there, then we're able to get cell phone data um, they call it tower data basically being able to triangulate or locate where someone was at any particular time of a particular day and sometimes that can be really hurtful to us as defense attorneys because we have this cell phone data that puts our client like at the scene of a crime but i've also had scenarios where cell phone data has helped exonerate our clients to show that they were in fact not at the scene of the crime and so there's a lot of lot of developments if handled appropriately and if we're not jumping into the areas of like making assumptions and speculating and we're actually using reliable scientific evidence it one it helps us come to better truths in our system about whether our clients were there whether they did certain things or whether they weren't um, and so I think that's it. It really helps us hopefully uh, develop a more accurate, reliable criminal justice system in the long term. OK, we've got another question. I'm Ben. Uh, so why did you decide to be a public defender? Sajid, go ahead. And the question was, why did we decide to be public defenders from Ben? Yeah. So I, I grew up uh, here in the Bay Area. Uh, my my parents, uh, my, my father was uh, worked in the semiconductor engineering industry. My mother is a clinical lab scientist, but both of them uh, really emphasized service as part of uh, as part of my childhood. And so I knew that I wanted to pursue a career that uh, not only was able to give me good financial stability, but also was rooted in service. So I thought about being a teacher. I thought about going to law school and doing civil rights work. I also grew up idolizing Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X wasn't a lawyer himself, but he's a civil rights pioneer in this country. And he's who I thought a lawyer could look like and could accomplish because of his charisma, his speaking truth to power, his standing up on behalf of the less privileged and minorities in this country. So I decided, I actually did teach for a year before I went to law school, and so I was really torn about between being a teacher and going to law school. I decided to continue my path to law school, wanting to do civil rights work, helping people. I thought I would want to do employment discrimination, so helping people that are being discriminated against because of their race or gender or age in the employment context. But then in law school, I took a class called Criminal Procedure, 
which is a class that teaches us about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments of the United States Constitution, and in particular the Fourth Amendment, which is our rights to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures by police officers, basically where we're free or supposed to be free from police officers harassing us, coming into our homes, searching our pockets, searching our stuff, unless they have a legal basis to do so. And it was that class that really fired me up about wanting to do criminal defense work because I realized in that class that we as a community are a lot less free from police contact than we think we are, especially for minorities in our country, especially for minorities in different parts of our country. And I realized then that it's public defenders that are the ones that are in court that are challenging police officers um, and challenging their collection and handling of evidence that are the ones that are really the vanguards of of the Constitution. And so I thought this is the perfect fit for me. It's perfectly aligned with my wanting to serve. It's perfectly aligned with me wanting to be Malcolm X. And it's perfectly aligned with uh, me wanting to do civil rights work. And then now I've discovered all the other layers of the work, which includes the things that we just talked about, representing young people, uh, standing up for certain values in our community, um, and then also making sure that everyone's rights are preserved and that no one is convicted of, of any crimes unless there's adequate, credible proof. And so I've just fallen in love with the work. But that was my first entry point was um, the Fourth Amendment. I'm Chloe, and I was just wondering, when you see um, prosecuting lawyers going against you, do you feel that their goal is for justice to be served, or do they strive to be liked by the affected or be liked by others? Good yeah, question. Yeah, so the question, just to repeat for everybody from Chloe, was as we watch prosecutors, what are our thoughts about their motivations? Are they trying to seek justice? Are they trying to build their reputations? I don't think too much about like what is going on and in kind of internally for prosecutors I assume uh, good faith from people that are interact with like they have a, a viewpoint about the criminal justice system that I in many many cases disagree with about uh, what right outcomes are about social costs about what the just thing is about what the burden of proof means uh, about when uh, a search is unlawful uh, so we have lots and lots of disagreements, but I don't make any decisions based on the individual prosecutor, right? Because what if I have a client and I think the prosecutor is like not a good one and not fair, and then I start doing things based on my interaction with the prosecutor instead of what I'm trying to do for my client? Or if the prosecutor and I are, real, are BFFs, right, uh, what do I, do I get to a different result? Right, so so I, I wind up. It's hard for me to think about what people's motivations are. So I um I don't I don't really think too much about it. Saja, what do you think? Every DA is different that we interact with. It's like I said, uh, like Avi just mentioned, it's hard to ascertain or understand exactly what the, where their motivations lie. Um, each DA is coming from their has to answer to supervisors in their office and has to answer to their higher ups, and so even. You know, sometimes DAs will say, oh, my hands are tied. I can't I can't give your client this offer. Sometimes you look at them and you think they're just using that as a cop out because they they actually could make the offer that we want them to make. But then sometimes I genuinely do believe them that there are people in their office that won't let them make that offer, even though they themselves think is the right, you know, that it's the right thing. Um, I also empathize with DAs. They do have a lot of people to answer to. Like I said, they have higher-ups in their office that they have to answer to. They have to answer to victims of crimes. They have to explain outcomes to victims of crimes. They have to answer to the police officers that do the investigations in these cases um, and who are relying on the DA to kind of carry through what they started. So let's say a police officer you know, decides that there's enough evidence for a murder charge and then the DA starts to prosecute it, that DA is going to have to answer either directly or indirectly to that police officer about the decisions that they make. So there are a lot of different factors that they are evaluating. Uh, but to Avi's point, we just fundamentally disagree on significant aspects of our justice system. I think that prosecutors tend to rely on jail and incarceration being their primary answers to criminal behaviors and we're trying to move off of that being the answer 
And so we just fundamentally disagree. And then to answer Avi's uh, thought about BFFs, one of the things is I don't get involved in social relationships with district attorneys uh, for a variety of reasons because I, I fundamentally disagree with them on a lot of things that would probably inhibit me from having real friendships with them. And then the second thing is I don't want it to come at a cost to my clients that in some shape or form that my friendships with prosecutors will um, either implicitly or explicitly impact my loyalty to my clients. And so and then sometimes even the optics of it in court, I know this wasn't your question, but sometimes in court, if uh, if our clients see that we're too buddy buddy with DAs, you know, how would you how would one feel if if, you know, their lawyer was just chopping it up with like the uh, adversary in court, they would feel like that they weren't um, being protected. They were, you know, that there wasn't loyalty to, the, to them. And so I never want to make it seem that my client is um, any less than my first priority. Um, I'm Nicholas. Uh, I just want to ask, what is justice in both of your opinions? Okay, so the question from Nicholas is, what is justice? That's a, a large question large question probably I don't think we'll be able to give an adequate answer there's lots I think of justice as having many many components I think in our the I'm just gonna answer in the context of the criminal justice system in the context of like sharing ice cream there's other concepts of justice or you know <laughs> like gi you know giving out goods in society but in the criminal justice system when our system treats people with dignity when their voices are heard, when they're giving process, like procedural protections, like an attorney who is effective and informed, I think that that contributes to our justice system. I think when same cases are treated similarly and different cases are treated differently, that can be part of justice. When we question what this system is and what we have and whether it's a good system for our society and when we do things to improve it, for example, I don't think mass incarceration in California is justice. I think lots and lots of people who plead guilty to crimes just so they can get out of a jail cell, that doesn't resemble justice to me. Uh, I think that if people are able to make free choices, for example, like they're out on bail while they haven't been convicted, that produces better, more just outcomes. But I, you know, I can't give you a, a larger definition. That's a great question. Uh, my mind is like racing to try to answer it. I'm just going to give you some like my stream of consciousness response. Justice is holistic. Um, it, it accounts for a variety of different factors and persons in our in our system. It accounts for the the victim. It, it accounts for their uh, desires, their healing. It also accounts for the rights of the accused. Um, it also accounts for what is in the best interest of our community, uh, both in terms of deterring crime, but also rehabilitating the offenders so that they can come out as contributing healed members of the community. And then it also has a financial component, too, that we have to be financially efficient and, and mindful so that we're not um, wasting money on a correctional system that could be better used elsewhere, like in our schools, things like that. Um, so I, that's what it comes to mind is that justice is holistic and it has a variety of layers and we try to find this balance of being able to uh, account for all of these different components on each individual case. That's another thought that comes to mind is that it's individualized to a degree, but to Avi's point, there also has to be equity so that there's not too much disparity from one case to another. Um, I'm Clara. Sorry. I was just wondering um, if something is legalized and many people are in jail for it, like, for example, taking the legalization of pot or something, recently, um, would the many, many people who are incarcerated because of these drug offenses be set free, or how would that work? Yeah, um, so the question from Clara was, uh, when decriminalization happens, what what occurs for the folks who have been subject to the crime. Usually, uh, we're getting good at this, or we're getting better at decriminalizing things. Uh, at first, there'll be like some sort of decriminalization, like something that was a felony becomes a misdemeanor, uh, which means maybe people can get out of prison for it, uh, but we don't really clarify the steps for them to get out of prison. With the recent uh, passage of Proposition 64 in California, which provides that it's no longer a felony to possess marijuana with the intent to sell it, there's a mechanism that we can bring petitions in court. We can bring like uh, a file a piece of paper in court saying this person serving a prison sentence, the offense that they're serving is for this. We want the case to be redesignated to a misdemeanor and for them to be resentenced. 
the thing that you have to watch out for with all these big decriminalizations are the following. Most of our mass incarceration problem is not from people possessing uh, marijuana. And so it's sometimes said like the way we need to fight mass incarceration is by getting rid of marijuana sales. There's really big things that we have to do separate from that, like more parole opportunities for people who aren't in jail for marijuana, more parole opportunities for people who've committed violent offenses, really offenses that we don't like. The other thing is whenever decriminalization happens, it's interesting to look at who's been left out of the decriminalization. So there'll be these disqualifiers that are kind of a result of like some law that failed to pass in 2006. And you'll see, okay, if they have a, some sort of offense in their past, they can't get released from prison for a marijuana offense now. So you just want to be aware of you know, who's excluded and who's included. Um, I'm Joy, and I was wondering, so if someone close to you um, was harmed or killed, would you show prejudice or like bias? So Joy's question was, if someone close to us is, is harmed, uh, or would we show prejudice, or w would we still kind of have our public defender values intact? Sajid, why don't you answer that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. From a legal standpoint, we couldn't represent the person accused of that crime. Let's say my family member was the victim of a assault, and uh, the alleged perpetrator was arrested and charged. Uh, we wouldn't be able to represent that person because that would be an inherent conflict of interest. And so that person would go to a different office for representation. But in terms of what values we had, I wrote this blog post in the past couple months because I was at a, me and Avi were speaking at an event in Redwood City and um, I had, was, fl I was speaking at this event at this, at the Redwood City Library. And then I was going to fly, I was going to go to San Francisco airport straight from there for a flight. So I had my luggage and my backpack in the back seat. I went to speak at the event. I come out and my, my window is smashed in. My luggage and my backpack are stolen. And so there's about a couple hundred dollars worth of damage to my car. And then there's about a thousand dollars worth of stuff that was taken from me, like my eyeglasses, some of my favorite t-shirts, some books, my backpack, you know, just a lot of, lot of things that I want to take with me. And so I started to think to myself, you know, like what would I want to happen to the person that did this? Like, uh, would I, would my response be that I want them to go to jail, that I want them to be incarcerated for a period of time, and if so, for how long? And I, I didn't want that person to go to jail um, unless maybe, maybe if they were some habitual offender that couldn't help themselves from committing theft-type crimes or breaking into people's cars and they needed essentially a timeout from the community. But I wouldn't want them to go to the jail, the jails that we have, uh, which are really dehumanizing and degrading and gross and are really belittling of, of our fellow human beings. I would maybe want them to go to a place where they could be housed for a period of time, get treatment, perhaps if they were suffering from some mental health or substance abuse issues to get treatment that to the, for the behavior that underlied their, their actions, or if they were poor and homeless and needed a job, that there would be something in our community that could help remedy those issues. I'd also like a chance to meet with that person, to be able to talk to them about what was going on with their life, to tell them how their actions impacted me, how they traumatized me, how they financially impacted me. I know I recognize that that's just a theft crime. I wasn't physically hurt. I know it's not a like a grave crime like the one you probably are referring to. So I don't necessarily know how I would react in the future if, if I had a family member that was killed or someone who was severely hurt or sexually assaulted, I'd imagine that my values would still shine through, that I would still want, uh, like I answered the question earlier, a holistic response that held them accountable, but also ensured that we understood the roots of their criminal behavior and had a chance to rehab rehabilitate them so that they become better as opposed to just locking them up and forgetting about them. So those are some of my thoughts, um, and we'll see. I mean, y you know, we'll see what if, if and when those types of things happen, whether these values that we're espousing will continue to maintain or not. Yeah, I, I understand when victims come into court and express real hostility towards our clients or frustration with the system. I would definitely not represent the client who harmed my family because of the conflict issue that Sajid described, and you'd want to have good counsel and when I think about our response to harm and like violence or crime in our society, I just 
I want us to always think about the harm that we do to our society as we carry out our punishment. You know, as we label people felons and take away job opportunities from them in the future, it, it creates a vicious cycle. Um, so two questions. The first, the second one isn't really about what we've been talking about. I'm Maya, and I was wondering, it, um, do innocent people go to jail if your cases aren't strong enough? And also, if someone gets a life without parole, what do they do with the rest of their life? Okay, so question one was, do innocent people go to jail from Maya? And then question two was, when someone gets life without parole, what do they do? Uh, so, Saji, do you want to do question one? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's really hard to ascertain whether we have innocent, I, whether I've had innocent clients that are currently sitting in custody. Um, you know, one of the limitations of our job is that we don't necessarily know exactly what happened. We do have clients that tell us that, you know, that they, they didn't commit a particular crime, but all the evidence seems to indicate that they did. So the best that we can do is tell their stories and, and um, like I said earlier, uh, make sure that they're not convicted unless there's s strong enough proof of, of, the, of the particular crime. There's also a lot of gray area crimes. I would say, though, overall, to answer your question, I, I would say for the most part that our justice system generally gets it right but as as we are well aware there's the innocence project where the constantly people are being exonerated for very serious crimes yeah about the innocence thing there's the people who are factually innocent right like they're accused of uh, doing a killing in los gatos and they're actually have proof you know they're on video at the same time in richmond that's that's the person who completely did not do it those people exist we had a person who was arrested it was in the news for a, uh, a killing and the way they connected the person was that his uh, DNA was on the fingers of the person who was killed, which is pretty good evidence. But he was actually in jail. And the reason that his DNA was on the person's finger was a little device that the paramedic used that they clicked to your finger to check your pulse. They had used the same device on him earlier that night. So that's a, like really kind of makes your brain expand about how much DNA can travel. Uh, uh, there's the fully innocent person. Then there's the person who's committed some wrongdoing, but they're being charged for something separate. So the person who broke into a house to go to sleep, but is being charged for residential burglary, going into the house to commit a crime, right? They did something that they shouldn't have done, but are they being correctly charged? Then there's the person who's correctly charged, just, you know, that what they did is being described correctly by the prosecution, but the time that our criminal justice uh, system seeks is way out of line. Right, the people who are doing life in prison for drug offenses, which we met a person who we interviewed uh, for the podcast who was doing 160 years to life in prison for selling drugs to a police officer. There's, uh, there's kind of all these ranges of what's innocence, how does it match up. People who go to prison for life without the possibility of parole, I hope that they do what Edgar did. He was, I think, unusual in that he took advantage of every rehabilitative program he started helping people who were there. He, you know, he, he still had a life to live while he was incarcerated, right? It wasn't over for him. He's just uh, incarcerated. He can still make good. Yeah, we've, we've met countless clients, including Bilal Chapman, who we interviewed on the podcast, who was sentenced to 160 years to life uh, pursuant to California's three strikes law, who at the time that he was sentenced had no prospects of ever getting out of custody. The law changed and permitted him a, him a path out of prison. And the reason he got out of prison is because of all the amazing, beautiful things that he was doing in prison. Uh, so we've met countless clients that, uh, as much as we lament about prison, uh, there are positive things that are happening in our prison systems where people are growing and maturing. And they're doing it even in contexts where they don't have to um, from a legal perspective. I'm a big documentary buff when it comes to prison life and so i watch these prison uh, documentaries there's one on hbo called uh the terminal i think it's about um prisoners that are dying in our in, in the state of iowa in prison and what's amazing there is that they have uh, hospice care for uh elderly prisoners so prisoners are helping take care of other prisoners as they reach their dying days and so these prisoners are being trained to be hospice nurses and aids and attendance and they're really beautiful if you didn't know that they were in prison you'd think they were in a hospital um so there's a lot of human talent and uh human resources that are locked away in our state 
prisons uh, that we would really benefit from because there's a lot of insight and maturity, people that have experienced a lot that I think our communities could really uh, grow from. Um, I'm Maya and I was wondering if you get a choice um, to be appointed to a case. No, generally not. And the question was from Maya, do we get a choice about whether we get appointed to a case? Yeah, generally no. Um, when we sign up to be public defenders, uh, we essentially um, are saying to our offices, to the courts and the community that we will take anyone assigned of anything that lands on our desk. I often have written that our clients didn't get to choose us, but we chose them when we chose the profession. And so part of what we do is is uh, when we choose this profession is the is the willingness to take on any case, any client, whether they be a young person who's never been accused of a crime before or the repeat offender who's been in and out of prison for their entire life, whether it be the person accused of a petty theft or someone accused of really serious murder. That's part of the profession that we've chosen to take on. We volunteer as tribute. Okay. What's that? <laughs> it's a Hunger Games joke. Um, Hi, I'm Neela, and I was wondering how long do you usually research and work on a case before going on trial, and how often do you work on cases? Yeah, so uh, it depends on the situation. Uh, so we're always working on cases. When I started as a public defender, I started on December 7th, and I was starting my first trial on December 14th. So it was one week. You know, that was the amount of time that I had to work on the case. Sajid's cases, and now some of my cases, but all of Sajid's cases are much uh, more serious and have longer windows uh, because the stakes are so high. So it's like the more intense the case, the more... You know, you really now, nowadays, you have to really dig into your clients' backgrounds. You have to know if they were in the dependency system or in the foster care system. You have to know everything about it. You have to know about every house, like Sajid had described. You have to do what needs to be done to give the closing that Sajid gave, right? And how long does that take, right? It takes, it takes more than weeks, you know, to find out every place that your clients lived at as a young person, right? So, I mean... And that's a standard. Thankfully, you know, we're in a place where as public defenders, we're able to put in that work for our clients. Yeah, it depends on the case. I mean, you, your average misdemeanor low-level case, like, like Avi alluded to, you can get up to speed on in a week. Um, and mind you, we're not working on one case at a time, generally. When you were handling misdemeanors, uh, we probably had caseloads of 50 to 75 clients at a time um, that at different stages of the process. When I was in juvenile court and representing juveniles, same numbers, 50 to 75. When we, when we move on to felony trials, uh, we have 20 to 25 at a given time in our office. And our office is probably like one of the best offices in terms of caseloads. And so our numbers are probably lower than in most many counties. I'm handling homicides right now and I have five total clients. Uh, which gives me the opportunity to really dig deep into my clients' lives, into their stories, their backgrounds, and their cases. Um, in terms of time that it takes, it really depends. It depends on how fast the client wants to go. It depends on how strong or weak the evidence is. Um, it depends on how much investigation needs to get done, how much discovery there is in terms of police reports, video recordings, pictures, medical records, things like that. Um, I would say on average, a felony case is probably going to take at least four to six months at minimum to work through the system for us to be appropriately prepared to advocate for a particular outcome. And on a homicide case, probably a year. But then sometimes it'll move faster. Sometimes it'll move slower. So it just depends on the, on the, on the, on the case, the client, the evidence, and a variety of factors like that. Francisco's case that I mentioned earlier uh, I got in January, and now we're doing our closing argument on this transfer part of the case in December. So it took it took several months for us to get to this point, and we're not even in the trial phase of the case yet. Any other questions? All right, you're back. It's Tabor again, and I was wondering what the most stressful case you've ever worked was. Most stressful case we've ever worked on. You know, when you get a case that's a gray area type case, you could have gray areas around self-defense where there's an act, but how is it legally interpreted uh, you know, by a jury? A case that Saj and I did about a year ago, I, was, I think about it all the time. I, I don't know that that means it's my most stressful. When you're in a trial, it's all stress 
you know, that's it's it's just the existence is stress when you're doing a trial and when you're preparing for it sometimes. I get stressed out. It's not about whether what I think about the strengths and weaknesses of the prosecution's case or if I think I should win or not. I don't know. It's just situational for me. I mean, it's all relative. And what I mean by that is when I was doing misdemeanors, the, my first misdemeanor trial was the most stressful thing I've ever experienced. I lost, I, or we lost our first misdemeanor trial and I cried. And then when I went into felonies, I um, was, my client was looking at a state prison commitment if he was convicted. And that was the most stressful thing that I had ever experienced. My, we lost that trial. I cried some more. And then my recently I've, I'm on our homicide team in my office. And so I did my first homicide trial last year. It ended up in a hung jury, which was a good result for my client. But then this past fall, I just did my second homicide or murder trial and my client was convicted of first degree murder which is the most severe or at least amongst the most severe murder charges and that was after me pouring my heart and soul into the client and into the argument um, asking the jury to find him not guilty of first degree murder but instead find him guilty of a lesser crime called manslaughter Uh, the jury rejected my arguments I'm still not recovering from it in terms of the blow to my ego, the blow to my prepar- you know, the blow to my soul, the blow to how uh, connected I am to my client because my client's now going to be sentenced to a, to a 30 plus years to life in prison sentence. And so uh, that, to answer your question, is probably the most uh, stressful case that I've ever handled. And I'm still kind of in the process of dealing with it. And the, and the closing argument that I just gave earlier for my client, um, it's also a very stressful set of circumstances because I I recognize there are many things beyond my control. Obviously, I don't control the outcomes of my cases, but at the same time, I feel very much responsible for my client's life and want to ensure that I'm doing the best that I can to dot every I and cross every T on his behalf. And, and I feel the weight of his existence in my hands. And so all these cases are pretty stressful, but uh, very fulfilling at the same time. That's all the time we have. Thanks, thanks everybody. Yeah, thank you we very much. We had a lot much. of fun. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for the questions. And we'll we'll stick around if anybody wants to hang around. If you guys have time, we'll we'll hang out. And my nephew, by the way, is Yassine. He's in sixth grade in Connecticut. Thank you guys for having uh, him. He's on his winter break, so I appreciate you guys letting him sit in with you guys. 